You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are still 3,000 years in the future with Isaac Asimov in Caves of Steel. I would just like to say that I am disappointed the commissioner was not thrown out a window. Yeah, we have reached the end of the story. Our culprit has been identified. It was nobody we suspected along the way. It's true. It was impossible to figure out, obviously. Yes. Uh, and, yeah, it, we are discussing <laughs> chapters 13 to 18 today, the final chapters, the final serial release of The Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov. You've done it. Yeah. You've solved a mystery. I solved the game. I'm just going to do a little a little cheer, a little victory dance, run a few laps around the studio. Um, <laughs> I want to thank my mother. But yeah, I mean... Just, just your mother? Just that's, my that's mother. That's where the list that's ends. It. Good, good. Flex, on. look, you don't get thanks from me. That's not how this show works. I wasn't no expecting thanks from, you. thanks from you. I just want to make that entirely clear so we're clear on the relationship here. But I am very happy that I managed to solve what was going on, figure things out. Uh, a little bit more than than I was expecting, funnily enough. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed going through this novel and trying to figure out, because obviously the commissioner is a very obvious vi- villain character. Extraordinarily so. But uh, using like the, the tropes of, of sci-fi and the buddy cop genre and kind of understanding what Asimov was all about mm. and using that to, to extrapolate the hidden pieces of the puzzle. And we'll obviously get into that more in the final part of the show yes. when we discuss how fair the story is coming up in about Mm. 20-ish minutes. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, first of all, open up with the things I loved about this book and the things Mm -hmm. I think you should read it for. Throw them at me, Flex. I think, obviously, this does a fantastic origin story of some of the social commentaries. It's a Mm. brilliant place to start in both sci-fi and murder mystery if you're looking to get into either genre. Mm -hmm. I think, as we've discussed on previous episodes, the balance of themes that it does is extraordinary. Mm. Nothing feels like it's been given too much or too little time. Mm -hmm. Everything is extraordinarily well-paced. So, yeah, I I thought that that was excellent consistent the whole way through the book perhaps one of the most consistent in quality books we've covered the whole way through the show yeah i don't think there's a single bad chapter in here and even in terms of character development i feel like even the characters we only saw for one or two scenes we got a really like deep window into their their various despairs and their trials Mm. um even vince barrett who like (laughs) i was expecting to see again yeah gets a scene and they're in fact a, a you know a suspect for the murder for at least a brief moment yeah um yeah we get to see the despair in his in his young eyes as he's sent back to live on the yeast farms and he you know he says can i stay in the office for just one more just one more minute it won't be as depressing that poor kid yeah i felt for him and it's, it's really great too because it's the kind of thing where a lot of other writers would have brought Vince Barrett into that scene and not have him be mentioned in the first chapter. Yes. But I think the fact that he was even just mentioned in a single sentence in the first chapter makes it feel so much more like a payoff than a tone-setting moment. It also, uh, not to tangent too hard on this show, but it also sets up quite well the scene when we actually go to a yeast farm and we get an idea of what Mm. the cultists, who presumably there are many cultists working in these wheat farms, what their daily life is like and the sorts of things that they're struggling against, this like ritualized society. I love it, sci-fi, you beautiful mistress. Yeah, and The Caves of Steel, when it came out, quickly became Asimov's best-selling book and was then topped by its sequel, The Naked Sun, and its Mm. following sequel, Robots and Dawn. Um, so I think that if you're looking to get into either genre, this series is an amazing place to start. 
The only reason I don't <laughs> recommend the fourth book is because then you'd have to also go through the Foundation series, uh-huh. which is also excellent, mind you, but that's a lot of reading. It's a lot of reading regardless, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a lot of reading that you, you could otherwise be joining along with us this here is on true. Death of the Reader. Which you should, of course, do. Which you should, of course, do. At 9 p.m. Sundays. <laughs> that's right. And on the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Wushka, all of the fun all stuff. All of the things. Uh, and, of course, stick around because we will be announcing our next books at the end of this show. I'm excited for that. Do you say I drop it to, I dropped I the did. hint in there? I did. I heard that. Let's do it. <laughs> um, I think the one thing that this book did let me down with, though, was the ending. Mm. The book had been so fantastic the whole way through, addressed all of its themes very well, but then when we got to this final final discussion between our culprit, Lige Bailey, and our Daniel Olivor, mm. it just it didn't land for me. Yeah, I think that the, to be clear, the final chapter is, for the most part, excellent. Yeah. The actual cornering of the commissioner, watching him try to struggle against, there's a particular moment where Bailey just says, I think it's at the end of chapter 17, mm. he just says, well, I figured out who the culprit is and how they carried the, the murder out. And the commissioner just says, what? Like, yeah. he just exclaims out loud, and it's one of the funniest moments in the book. But uh, watching them kind of go back and forth in this, like, this intellectual battle yeah. is fantastic. However, once we've decided the commissioner's fate, uh, I don't think that Asimov really knew how he, how to end the novel. I disagree. <laughs> you think so? Tell me about no, that. No, I think that Asimov knew exactly what he wanted to do. I think okay. that he didn't come up with an ending that fit either genre, and thus right. it's the one thing that feels out of place in the whole book. Because basically what happens is that the commissioner is, you know, admits to his guilt, says what happened, how it all how it all happened, and he yeah, apologizes, and Lige Bailey and R. Daniel Olivor basically say that, well, we can pretend you're innocent as long as you serve our purposes. Elijah is quite correct. Help us, commissioner, and we'll forget the past. I am speaking for Dr. Festolf and our people generally in this. Of course, if you should agree to help and later betray us, we would always have the fact of your guilt to hold over your head. I hope you understand that, too. It pains me to have to mention that. I, I won't be prosecuted? Asked the Commissioner. Not if you help us. It just... It's such a non-conclusion. It is a bit weird. I mean, the part that strikes me as the most strange is when they literally join arm-in-arm and skip out of the office into the sunset. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it's, it feels like very obvious sequel mm. bait. You know, we've got this promise that humanity will reach for the stars, which is cool. Um, and we've got this promise that the commissioner will help, you know, the, the forward progress of the spaces. Yeah. Um, because the kind of, uh, the, the argument that Asimov is making is that it's, it's not the scientific people that will, at the end of the day, push beyond the like, ritualistic culture of Earth and and attempt to colonize. It's the emotional people. It's the irrational people. Yeah. Uh, the, the religious people, even, in certain circumstances, who are going to be relied upon to break the norm. And that is uh, is a very interesting pairing because, of course, sci-fi, we're pairing this with the the cult's intents to, like, smash all the robots. And so he's pairing that idea of, like like, breaking against the system of, like, new technology and robots coming into the picture mm. with breaking the bonds of Earth, Yeah, right? Rather than smashing robots, let's smash the ozone layer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the other thing I wanted to shout this book out on before we before we end this section is it's comedy. Yes. Oh, we didn't talk about this, but Bentley has the best sequence in the entire novel for comedy. The comedy in this novel is not 
particularly overt. Mm. It's not a comedy novel, but there there are two scenes in particular that that just really got me. Yeah. There's the scene with the commissioner where we, we don't get any descriptions of his face or what he's doing, or he, it's not like this long bit. It's just when Bailey says, you know, I figured out who it is. And the commissioner just says, what? Like, <laughs> I love, I love that he's very clearly like sweating. Like you can picture him and he's, he's like panic. But in the moment, it's not 100% clear to the reader what's going on. The other scene uh, is the the scene where Bentley uh, inquires of Daniil's interest in robots. Mm. And uh, the scene is punctuated when he, you know, he asks that question. And obviously this is the question on everyone's minds, you know, as we're reading the novel, like, will they figure out he's a robot? Will this end up in a violent situation? Is this going to cause problems? And the response is not a vocal one. It's not shouting and raving and ranting. It's not like this huge panic fight between the family. It's just... Have I had the family's permission to view these books during your meal? Oh, Sure said Bentley, slipping away from the table, a look of instant interest upon his face. They're mine. I got them from the library on a special school permit. I'll get you my viewer. It's a very good one. Dad gave it to me for his last birthday. He wrote to Arda Neal and said, Are you interested in robots, Mr. Oliver? Bailey dropped his spoon and bent to pick it up. I do think that one of the best parts of the comedy in this novel is the fact that none of it feels like a comedy routine. It's all just kind of in-situ comedy. Yeah. It all fits into the story, and it's the, the, the story that's being told is funny rather than there being jokes. Yeah, yeah. It's and I of, love that. Yeah, it's kind of the irony of the situation when we know what's going on and the characters don't, or the characters do know and they're trying to like hide it from each yeah. other. It's that very kind of sitcom comedy, but without it completely devolving into chaos, which I like. Absolutely. Either way, this has been our discussion on what we liked, what we loved, what we... And in uh, in the Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov. All that. Right now, we're in with our guest. This is Death of the Reader, and we'll be back in just a second. This is Flex and Hertz bringing you Death of the Reader, your Murder Mystery World Tour. Today we have with us Mr. Peter Zing, co-founder of Transhumanism Australia, graciously agreeing to join us to speak about why you should be terrified of scary emerging technologies. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you. <laughs> so, Peter, Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov, classic science fiction novel, features the usual array of wild technologies for the time, like substitute meats, holographic entertainment, robots designed to integrate into our society. How closely is how our modern technology followed predictions of classic science fiction authors like Asimov, Wells, and more? I tell you what, we're living in the most exciting time because technology is moving faster and faster, and people just, to be honest, can't keep up with it anymore. Hmm. Uh, you can see there's nightmarish Terminator-style movies and people referring back to them whenever they talk about artificial intelligence. You know, that scene where the, the metal boot crushes the human skull? Yeah. And you see that every time it brings around. And it's actually starting to look more, more and more real because Elon Musk out there talking about the future of AI overtaking what it is to be human, that's scaring the crap out of everyone. <laughs> yeah. In terms of holograms, it's the uh, emerging technologies that we're seeing more and more. I think 2020 will be the year where this augmented reality and the holographic imaging will become just part of everyday life. So looking forward to seeing what happens next year as well. Yeah, some exciting changes. Uh, yeah, the world's first journalist AI named uh, Suthi Chai AI uh, was recently unveiled in Thailand. Will we be seeing artificial intelligence that had the capacity to solve murder mysteries and other narrative-based puzzles as well soon? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, the police force all around the world are already starting to use some basic artificial intelligence just mm-hmm. to be able to identify, you know, what the potential criminals are. Uh, you know, everything around data is about having a single view of every single person. And in China, that's probably closer to truth because uh, everyone gets a social credit score over there. And uh, we're going to see eventually the AI algorithm giving probabilities of which individuals or citizens of each state will be more likely to commit a crime than not. And when it comes to one particular crime in, in, a, in a particular neighborhood, they can just narrow that down based on the activities of every one of their citizens. So just like a detective, the AI will start to start replacing what the detective work used to do pretty manually in the past. That sounds like we're getting close to a psychopath-esque future. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. More and more, we're seeing it. Um, it was that movie, essentially, you see Tom Cruise, right, uh, talking about that future where uh, there is pre-crime, uh, looking at the future of that before being able to predict what that crime will happen before it actually happens and stopping mm-hmm. it in real time. Uh, that's essentially what all these predictions are starting to lead to. So when we talk about robots enforcing laws and starting to fill those roles in society, um, we love rules on this show, be it you know, structures of fiction, fair play, uh, Asimov's laws of robotics, which prevent AI from injuring humans uh, or allowing them to come to harm. How practical do you think structures like Asimov's laws would be in the field of modern robotics once we start to introduce them into roles that we haven't seen them before? I think Asimov created those rules just so that they can be broken in his novels, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely a way to think that, you know, the illusion of control that we have around some of these technologies uh, is what will be our downfall in the future. And already we're seeing discussions around this uh, future of AI and ethics uh, that's quite popular now. And that's sort of uh, starting to uh, become hyped up almost as a consulting service because people are saying, well, how do we know what these algorithms are doing? You know, what's the explainability of how they got to their decisions or the predictions? And how do we have transparency across the uh, these AI algorithms in the first place? With the rules of robotics, you know, if you think about um, maybe it's even very a simple AI that's responsible for, say, duplication of particular materials. Uh, you see in uh, Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, a very basic sort of rules-based AI that all only has to do is replicate paperclips can eventually lead to the downfall of the entire planet Earth and the rest of the universe by converting matter and energy into paperclips. And so simple rules like that uh, usually find a loophole around how to get around it because it could be for the benefit of humanity, right, at the end of the day. Yeah, well, a typical trope of, of apocalyptic sci-fi is that robots or artificial intelligences, they, they gain sentience and they kind of take over. How, how close are we to robots assuming all of our labor and leaving us with nothing but free time? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not that... Well, no, we're not there yet because, uh, you know, right now it's very narrow in, in its application. So that's, that's why they call it narrow AI or weak AI. And uh, it's very good at particular things, for example, in pattern recognition. Um, it's been applied in autonomous vehicles, so it's actually making the roads safer. By the next, over the next three years, we'll see it just essentially roll out into the mainstream with Tesla Autopilot, for example, becoming more and more advanced to the point where all it's waiting for is the regulators to allow this use on the roads without humans having to have their hands on the wheels. So those narrow applications like driving or be able to do natural language processing or uh, understanding uh, translation of language, those are the things that essentially will become uh, very, very uh, superhuman. Um, But combining all that together, when we're actually looking at general intelligence or essentially human-level intelligence, that will take a few more, I guess, uh, paradigm shifts or uh, breakthroughs in the AI development. But we're not too far ahead because... At the end of the day, we have something to go by, and that's in our brain. 
We yeah. know that uh, from, from the laws of nature, it is possible to do. So it's all about scientists working with the technologists, working with the researchers out there to actually do it all. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've shut down the the only flaw in this concept of transhumanism and pushing forward technologies. Uh, historically, the traditions of a, of a culture has has often clashed with a desire for scientific process. What is the the current struggle for transhumanism today in, a, in such a technologically connected world? Yeah, it is. This, um, yeah, the, the challenge for us is getting the mindset that this is all within reach because there's the traditional narrative that um, you know, in terms of longevity, that you're born, uh, you know, you, you grow up, uh, you might get married or, or find a life partner, uh, you might have some kids, and they might have some kids, and you grow older, and then you expect to just grow old and pass away. Mm. And that's the sort of the, the hero's journey throughout life. It's told in movies and stories to everyone. And it's been that way since uh, most of human history. Yeah, I, I know that you were back as early as 2016 attempting to classify aging as a disease. Um, that's right. Has that been successful? Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it sounds terrible when I say talk to, to an uh, elderly uh, audience. It's <laughs> like, you know, are you calling me a diseased person? But uh, that's just sort of how sort of the how we need to spin it. Because without treating it as a disease, uh, the government or the uh, pharmaceutical benefit scheme would not be able to prescribe drugs that essentially treating a, a treatable disease. Right? They wouldn't be able to incentivize the development of drug research and subsidize those for people that uh, essentially have a sickness or a disease in the first place. So, you know, without having it labeled as a disease, or whether it's in the U.S., the, uh, the FDA as well, that's our primary sort of motive. And we've had some success in the sense that um, we are now working with XPRIZE from Singularity as well, um, essentially trying to create an incentive prize for longevity. And the $1 million XPRIZE will go to uh, the first, uh, organization that can convince a government, an official government of a developed country to put uh, treat the aging process as a disease in their policy. So we can do that in Australia. Um, yeah, that would be fantastic. Um, we also have the Science Party in Australia that has a health policy around trying to treat the aging process as a disease so that we can actually get funding to find a potential cure. Mm. Uh, so yeah, those are sort of uh, quick uh, little wins that we're having uh, in Australia and around the world. Um, and slowly people are actually starting to accept that um, this is actually something that we can come together with and challenge the narrative that is the inevitability of death itself. <laughs> now, of course, we should address the most uh, significant question posing uh, against transhumanism this, of this era. Uh, Peter, do you have a favorite science fiction novel? For me, uh, you know, I, I've, always, I've always thought about, um, you know, the science fictions that are based fiction itself. So for me, it's Yuval Noah Harari, even though he's not a science fiction writer, he looks at human history, you know, uh, in Sapiens, and then he wrote 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, one of the sort of challenges that are facing us now, and then he wrote a futuristic non-fiction, which is Homo Deus, which is where we are going as the human race. So I think in that sense, it's actually, it makes not only just the imagination uh, you know, expand, but also makes it concrete. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say Yuval Noah Harari's work um, is almost like science fiction, but uh, right on the money for me. Uh, other than that, also Altered Carbon, uh, the original uh, in the novel format. Um, that's probably one of my favorites as well. Peter, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. 
This has been Flex and Herds chatting with Peter Zing, co-founder of Transhumanism Australia. Thank you again, Peter. And we'll be back with Caves of Steel in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds. This is your murder mystery world tour, and it's time to bid farewell to The Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov. I have been the veteran. Herds has been the blind man. But it seems that in the end, we weren't so blind together. <laughs> is that a joke relating to the commission's glasses? Is yes. that where that's come from? Absolutely. Is that what that is? So, Herds, Flex, come on. you've done it. You've I solved have. a story. You I've get done a point. It. Well done. I'm not even surprised. I knew I had it in me. I would like to thank uh, my father this time. Okay, I think good. that he's been really helpful in my solving of this case. Shout out to the Dune series and sci-fi tropes. Yes. Yeah, I mean... Wow. I found this to be a really fun little challenge. I'm also excited to have actually solved it this time. That's always nice. I thought that your solution as you were sending it to me along the way, because that's how we do this to make sure that we are, you know, keeping pace with the stories as we kind of send each other notes on our thoughts as we go through. Mm. Your thoughts were so similar, but so differently (laughs) justified to the way that I approached this story. Like, I I know... One of the things that you said is that how you solved this novel had a lot to do with the buddy cop thing, if you want yes, to kind yes. of go on about that. Sure, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I found this to be, you know, a pretty fair mystery in terms of solving it because I have the context of this being a sci-fi novel and immediately ping on the idea that it was a buddy cop. The whole point of a buddy cop is that C forward slash F-E it's about how these two characters from different societies are working together to do a thing and they learn something about each other on the way and they're begrudging respect. So I knew from the beginning that we had to arrive at a conclusion that would use the talents of both sides of the story, of the mm. spaces, you know, in their culture, the robots, and also Bailey. So it was only when Bentley mentioned his, like, you know, his, his contact lenses and, we, and we, we'd had this idea of the glass being brought up again and again and, and again that I realized, ah, that's the thing the spaces don't have cultural context for because that's what a buddy cop like comes down to. Uh, but Bailey does. So that's how I kind of justified it in my head. Which was so far removed from yes. what I was approaching it. Because what happened is at the end of the second chapter, I went, all right, cool. So there's one character in the story that it could be and they keep talking about his glasses. Yeah. That's it. That yeah. was me done. I when I was here's the thing. When I was reading about his glasses, I mm. thought, "Ah, oh, I see. Asimov is just hammering home the idea that they've been, you know, damaged in a yeah. struggle." But of course, as we pointed out earlier in this episode, how does that make any sense? Who was struggling with him for this puzzle to make sense? Yeah. The only person was the murder victim, but if we if they couldn't kill them, like how does that work? But yeah, that particular solution doesn't actually make sense after the information we provide in chapter two. Mm. Um, I will also say that we are not actually given the information that Daniil looks like his creator until the second section of the book. So I was not operating with that information. Apparently it was on a blurb of the book. I didn't read that. I didn't read that. Come on now. That's just unfair. I mean, I I don't think that you needed to to get this solution pretty early rubbish, on. Rubbish. I think that if you came in and approached it with our favorite rule sets of murder mystery fiction, Ronald Knox and SS Van Dyne links on the podcast as always, you could have solved it in seconds just by looking at, you know, the setup. And uh-huh. I think that's one of the main things that kind of tips the scales for me in terms of calling this novel fair in that it's too fair, but it's too fair because of the way I approach it. Sure. 
And I don't know whether that is a problem with me or a problem with the novel. Look, Flex, I get it. This is my time to shine the show. And you're just telling me how good you are at solving murder mysteries. (laughs) I get that. But. I don't, I don't actually agree. I think that the way that you solve the story is more interesting and is a more fun way to well, approach thank it. thank you, Flex. I appreciate you saying that. Now, don't you underhand me with, a, with the next statement because I know you're about to. No, the, the, the point more being that, right, in, in the conventional mystery sense, this novel is extraordinarily yeah. straightforward, but it also doesn't present itself in the conventional murder yeah. mystery sense. So when you're approaching a a mystery fiction novel like this, do you bring all of yourself to the table or do you kind of go along for the ride with the book? That's, that's the question that this book leaves me with. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. I am leaning more towards the latter, despite, you know, trying to solve the mystery, Mm. obviously, um, actively, but I am, I'm definitely the kind of person who, when I, when I come to the table, this is how I arrived at the Vince Barrett solution. I always look for the most interesting outlandish option before I consider like the most straightforward option. Yeah. The idea that the entire crime was possible because some idiot broke his glasses while wiping them is like so boring to me, but I managed to pull myself back around through the use of like sci-fi tropes to the point Mm. where it was actually the most interesting thing because of that like mundane aspect of it. And I mean, the the culprit screwing things up because they're nervous is a tried and true trope of the mystery genre. I suppose so. I I don't know. I guess you just haven't read enough of those herds. (sighs) I clearly need to. (laughs) If you want to pick the next book to be specifically a murder mystery where like it's because of nervousness that the crime even happens. Well, that would just be to give it away before we even get there. I know it would. That's why you got to slip it in the, not the next level, but the one after that. That's how you got to do it. I see. Well, now you can't do that, obviously. So, you know. But I don't know, the the way that I approached this book personally was that when it got to the second part of the book and it said that Dr. Sarton and Daniel Olivor had the same visage, Mm. I thought to myself, well, I know what my solution is. Let's just see where the book takes me. Mm. And I spent the entire rest of the book going through and saying, oh my goodness, was it actually that random guy in the shop? Oh my goodness, was (laughs) it actually his kid? Oh my goodness, was it actually his wife? And I had such a great time. Yeah, for like sure. I had down on paper from from the get go that it was it was going to be Julius, but I had so much fun just yeah. letting this novel take me for a ride. I mean, that's the fun part of any murder mystery yeah. novel, right? And then at the end of the novel, coming back and saying, "Well, why were these other characters introduced in the first place? Well, yeah. they just had red herrings. Did they have a a, a grander point to the story? Vince mm. Barrett being a prime example of this. Um, that's that's always the fun part of yeah. murder mysteries for me. Ultimately, herds, this story is fair. Mm-hmm. Extraordinarily so, given where it sits in the grand corpus of mystery fiction. Too fair, honestly. I hesitate to go that far, <laughs> but I am very tempted. I'll say that much. It's okay, I'm just herdsing with you. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, that has been our discussion on The Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you enjoyed this book, as I said earlier in the show, I highly recommend The Naked Sun and Robots of Dawn. Yeah. They are phenomenal novels as well. But now, herds, it's time for us to go on to our next Wait, book. Whoa, 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 whoa. Before we go on the next book. What? I was promised points. You got your point. Plural. Plural points. I think it was three points. What are you talking about? I was about? supposed to get for uncovering uh, not just the criminal themselves, but also the exact method by which they committed the crime. And also, I would say how they were caught, sir. Well. We can't forget the deal that was struck. I, I, I will not renege on my deal, <laughs> despite trying to avoid it. You can have... 
your extra points, sir. Yes. We are now drawn on <gasps> three points each. Oh, what a twist. I love this. This is the best show. I shouldn't, I, have, I shouldn't have put this gamble on the table. You shouldn't have. Don't gamble, children. <laughs> this is what happens. Your friends catch up to your point score, and then suddenly you seem more mediocre, a sleuth. Which you are. How dare Obviously. You? We are equally matched, sir, but you will see that I will be reign triumphant at the end, yes. Well, <laughs> Herds, we are coming up against Supporter Drive here on 2SER. We are. Which means that we are going to have to take two weeks on our next story. So what have you picked for us? Yes. For the next two weeks, uh, we'll be moving to uh, Czechoslovakia. So that's going to be fun. I see. We're taking a a half-Russian individual, (laughs) and we're just taking a short road trip down to Czechoslovakia. Just a very short road trip down to Czechoslovakia. Uh, And we're checking out author Karl Kopeck for the next two weeks. Uh, One for each of his pockets. Ah, I see. We're doing a tale from two pockets by Karol Chapek. Chapek! Honestly, I don't know. I put it into Google Translate, hit the speak button, and that's what it gave back out. We're going with Kopeck. (laughs) (laughs) Carl Quebec, we're doing uh, a tale from two pockets, and the way we're going to be uh, dividing that up, we're going to be dealing with his one pocket, the first half of the collection mm-hmm. of stories in the first week, and then we'll be looking in his other pocket the week after that. Um, yes. And so for next week, just check out The Disappearance of an Author and The Fall of the House of Vodiki. So those two stories that we'll be covering this time next week on Death of the Reader. Yes, these are nice short stories that you could probably do I mean, we could probably like read now. them out in the show we and have it. time left to spare. Let's just look. Let's, I mean, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> we shouldn't do that. <laughs> but we could. But the point being is that you, know. you will have the time to either catch up on the reading you've missed or get through the entire collection because it is a very fun little read. Yeah. Herds, I have to admit, I'm, I've, I've actually already read them. What? What was the point of me picking it then? Well, no, I read them after you told me that those were next on the show. Oh, good. Like, in the time that it took you to describe them, I finished them. Oh, excellent. Well, then you're ready for next week. You've yeah, got a yeah. whole week to, to discover them and research them, and you can tell me about them. We hope you enjoy Jailbreak <laughs> while we sit here and finish the rest of this collection. Let's do it. This is Death of the Reader on 2SER. Thank you very much for joining us. See you next week. 